The world we live in is an amazing one, full of passion, wonderment, and of course, fine wine. This is the story of one man's journey to fully understand and appreciate that world. So kick the tires and light the fires. It's time to ride between the wines. It's Burgundian in style. Just a whisper of cherry. Very nice legs. This is so perfectly balanced. Such an old world style. Is this laced with tobacco? A total fruit bomb. I say, say, Ponzi! <laughs> Howdy, riders, and welcome to episode 24 of Ride Between the Wines. As always, I'm your host, Mike Wineguy, and on this episode, I will be chatting with several very interesting people within the world of wine. The first guest who I welcomed to ride along with me was Richard Riddell, owner of the Well-Oiled Wine Company and purveyor of delicious Spanish wines. And later in this episode, I share a quick phone call with John McDaniel, one of Wine & Food Magazine's 2018 Sommeliers of the Year, as well as founder and CEO of Second City Soil and huge advocate for the Chicago wine scene. It's going to be a great episode, so buckle up and let's ride. All right, so we are in the car with Richard Riddell, like the football hat. Um, and uh, he's from Well Oiled, which uh, I just learned is actually his company. Um, so say what's up. Yeah, it's great. I'm so happy to be in Columbia. I've never been to uh, Columbia, South Carolina, so this is a treat. Awesome. Well, I hope that you have such a great day that you come back frequently. Well, I hope so too. Everybody who ever comes to South Carolina always wants to go to Charleston or Greenville or uh, some other city. But Columbia is the capital. And you know as well as I do that living in the capital is a great place to live, right? Absolutely. And you got a huge university, the Gamecocks here, right? Absolutely. So got, it's a vibrant, obviously a vibrant community, and I'm happy to be uh, participating in that as much as I can today. You are scoring points left and right. He just uh -huh. gave me a free hat, and now he's talking about my Gamecocks. Welcome, <laughs> sir. Um, let's, let's start off. Tell me um, a little bit about, before we actually get into the nitty-gritty of the different wines that you bring here, tell me about how you got into... Um, everything that you're doing well into the wine trade yeah um, the wine yeah, trade yeah. i was actually uh, i i left college with a, an english degree so that's entitled you know entitles you to pretty much nothing uh <laughs> and i uh, took up photography and i was a photographer for years and years uh working various magazines travel photography all around the world did a little fashion in new york city for a while and uh, nice and uh realized uh way late in life that i, I wasn't going to be able to make a, a decent living doing that so I, uh, I ended up uh, working for a tech company, uh, and uh, and it was AOL okay. at the time, and um, and we got bought by Time Warner, and you know things things were good, but it was a big company, and I and I wanted to finally leave that and do something that I was more passionate about, and uh, so I, I got into the wine business with the help of a friend at the time. Um, and the two of us started a company together, and it was it it was great. I was excited to be a part of it. I I knew about wine, but I hadn't been in the industry. Uh -huh. So, and he brought industry knowledge, and I brought knowledge of how to you know run companies and and uh, you know manage um, you know manage a business. So, and and what year was this? This was two thousand five. Two thousand five. Okay. And um, and then we're we're up in Virginia. We started in Virginia now. We're based out of Washington D.C., but we've always been in Northern Virginia, D.C. for for quite a while okay. um, and uh, and uh, yeah, several years after that uh, my partner and I had a falling out mostly because I found out he was not an honest person well anyway there's a lot way too Business much to go stuff. into there yeah, a lot <laughs> of stuff in there that's not good so I ended up uh, buying him out 
and um, and so I run the company on, on my own now. So okay, uh, it's been great, and it, I, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I've, I've enjoyed all the different stages of my career, uh, photography, uh, Fortune 500 companies, technology, and now wine, and uh, this is the, by far the funnest and most well, I can imagine, yeah. yeah. It's, right. it's so much fun, to, you know, it's easier to sit on a, you know, plane with somebody and say, what do you do? Like, oh, I'm in the tech world, I develop right. software, and they just go, oh, you know, and you say, oh, I, I and so wine, like, oh, everybody has an opinion, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They want to talk about it. Well, that's fun. Uh, so, um, at this point, um, you're importing primi- primarily Spanish wines. That's right. Primarily, we do some French, some Portuguese, some some Italian. We've done South Africa, South America, and we've done Australia. But it, it's kind of work begets work, and the more we've had success with Spain, the more Spanish suppliers want us to represent them, right. and the more our customers see us as Spanish guys. So it kind of snowballs into this. This thing that you know you can't really get away from for for, for better or for worse. Hmm. So, um, how many different states is it that you're in? We're in 46 oh, states. Oh, jeez, Louise. We can't sell wine in Arkansas for well, we can, but we just don't have a distributor in Arkansas. Uh-huh. We currently do not have a distributor in Minnesota. We do not have one in Alaska or Hawaii. Uh, we have had Hawaii in the past. We have had Minnesota in the past, but right now those four states are. Our, holds um yeah so how many people actually work in your entire operation we've got when you look at all of the folks that are w-2 employees plus brokers Mm -hmm. plus um folks that are contractors we do a lot of sort of outsourcing of stuff Uh we 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 have to add it up to be about six or eight something (laughs) so not very much (laughs) nice it's a small operation we try to keep things lean and tight uh, keep costs down uh, so that we can, you know, run a run a, a sharp operation and, and offer. What we what really excites me is finding values, finding wines that are really terrific for the price mm-hmm. over deliver. If it, you know uh, that uh, that retail for anywhere from eight ninety nine to you know fourteen ninety nine, uh-huh. but are drinking way above their price point. That's that's what excites me and. and with a low overhead and low margins, we can we can continue to do that. Do you would you say that you have uh, one particular? Sorry. Oh, and now I'm the jerk. Is there an ambulance? Is that what they're waiting on? Uh, well, I don't see anything. That thing. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, do you do you have one particular um, flagship? What, what what winery? What wine do you sell? Is Anciano your big? Absolutely, Anciano has been a workhorse for us for since it really came into being, and um, it's just a phenomenal brand. It's it's uh, you know it's the only brand in the world that has the aging statement on the label, like a bourbon or a scotch. And people that don't, you know, people that understand the Spanish category will see it and they'll go, "Oh wow, a Reserva for ten ninety nine, or a Grand Reserva for fourteen ninety nine. These are outrageous values." But people that don't understand Reserva, Crianza, Grand Reserva see the packaging which is attractive with uh-huh. the wire mesh cage see the aging statement wow age five years age seven years age ten whatever it is you know, of all of the levels and they just they don't have to know anything about Spanish wines or about you know aging uh, protocols in Spain they just see that and go well that's how I've been buying my bourbon I understand that so a consumer just intuitively sees that gets it sees that it's a value 
and buys it. So it brings people into the Spanish category that may not have already bought Spanish wines before. Yeah. So that's it's a hugely successful brand for us, and um, and uh, you know, and any distributor that you know takes it on. The the entire idea of uh, aging wines that long in general, but but certainly just a ten year aged wine to me that it's aged before it ever gets to us right. is a crazy amount of money that must be spent on it. You're 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 literally not getting paid for nine straight yeah. vintages of harvesting and everything for so that's kind of a that's a very cool thing to me we're about to go into our next stop here but i feel like uh when we come back i probably want to talk a little bit about that uh and some other wine so uh signing off for now we are back in the car and uh, for this next segment um i'd like to start off because you just told me the coolest story about um proto and the naming and the Ribera del duero so, uh, could you tell that again on the uh, actual recording? Absolutely, yeah. So, Protos, which is one of the newest wines in our portfolio, uh, is, was the original winery in Ribera del Duero. In the whole region, there were a bunch of grape growers got together and said, we need a place to vinify our uh, grapes, and they created a bodega called Bodega Ribera del Duero. So, 1927 was their first vintage. Uh, which they released and it they went on their merry way for many years until uh, the time that the the, the DO was formed so when they f- f- uh, formed the denomination origin Ribeiro Duero the the uh, folks forming it said that would be a really great name for our DO uh-huh. and uh, the bodega said we'll tell you what we'll give you the name we'll let you use our name and we'll take the name Protos uh, meaning first Perfect. Um, and uh, because we were the first, and uh, but you can use our name, and so very gracious. That's, yeah, that's, that's the way it's been, and the winery is uh, so it's a great story. It's still a wonderful winery. The winery has been modernized. It's a beautiful winery. I hope everybody gets a chance to see it one day. Um, designed by Richard Rogers, I believe, the architect. Um, so one of these sort of soaring glass and steel and uh, uh, places. Uh, they a lot of indigenous yeasts with their wines and um, have a lot of old vine properties it's just really a it's a special place and um, what what is the main grape that is in that uh, well in it's it's Tempranillo, Tempranillo. But in Ribeiro Duero Tempranillo is called Tinto de Toro Tinto de Toro oh, excuse me I'm sorry that in, in, in Tinto Fino in Toro it's called <laughs> Tinto de Toro okay but it's Tempranillo in Ribeiro Duero it's called Tinto Fino there it is <laughs> yes exactly it's funny um, well, um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, I'd, I'd probably like to ask you about several winemakers, but, but who is the winemaker that you've been talking about, the female winemaker this morning, um, who had the chemistry degree? Oh, right. So, uh, Maria Barua. Maria Barua. That was her name. Yep. Tell Maria, me about her. Maria is, uh, a Basque. Um, uh, she grew up in Lagronio, which is the head of the center of Rioja. Um, and she was a, uh, a chemist by training um, and studied chemistry and then she got into winemaking and as she uh, evolved in her career in winemaking she went back to uh, get a degree uh, and a PhD and her PhD is in Oak's influence on the aging of red wine. That is the most specific sounding PhD. I love that. Oaks and they're influencing on specifically red wine. Is that you said? Aging of red wine. Aging of red wine. Exactly. 
And then you said that she went on to create a hybrid barrel. Yeah, so that's that's one of her signature uh, uh, approaches to winemaking. She uses hybrid barrels for the Crianza, the Reserva, and the Grand Reserva, and those are uh, the hybrid, when I say hybrid barrels, I mean the staves are American oak, mm-hmm. and the caps are uh, French oak. Do you know, is the cooperage close there? Do you know where she does that? Does that she actually I make that herself I couldn't now? tell you, and I couldn't really tell you about the toast levels either. Yeah. I, I don't know enough about that. Well, when you hire someone with a PhD, you don't really need to yeah, know it yourself, do you? Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And uh, which, which wines does she make? Well, she makes uh, all of the lawn wines, the Crianta Reserva, Grand Reserva. Then there's the Edition Limitada, which you guys carry, uh-huh. the Coleman, uh, D12, and Vigna Lanciano, all of the reds uh, by lawn. And then, so the Crianta Reserva, Grand Reserva, those are all sourced fruit uh, by multiple growers in, in Rioja. Uh-huh. Now, above that, all the wines are made from a single 72-hectare um, acre plot. Okay. Uh, so those, the Vigna Lanciano, the Edition Limitada, the Coolman are all, they're sort of estate-grown fruit. Did, did you mention what LAN stands for or what yeah, that means? I didn't, but it's, uh, it is. It's an acronym. It's uh, L-A-N. Right, an acronym for the three regions of Rioja. Okay. And what are those? Lagronio. Lagronio. Alava. Alava. And Navarra. And Navarra. <laughs> awesome. That's a very clever name. Yes, it is. We can't go into it too much more because we have to go inside and, and have a little wine here at Terra. But uh, we'll be back out in just a second. All right, so we're finally back in the car. We've been running around a lot and haven't had more than 30 seconds to talk. Um, but for this last little bit, um, instead of talking about all your different wines, actually, so I would assume as somebody who's importing Spanish wines, you spend a good bit of time over there. Um, what do you like about... Is there a particular region you love the most? What's what's it like over there? I, I have not made it to Spain yet. I, well, first of all, I love it. I love I love everything about Spain. I, I consider it kind of it was the stock would be undervalued. I mean, everybody wants to go to Italy and France, but Spain is a little still off the beaten path. The food scene is just off the hook, fantastic. It's phenomenal. Um, you know, the Madrid, for example, is has the second largest fish market in the world behind the Japanese fish market. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's just outrageous. The, 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 the Spaniards consume so much fish. You think of it as like steak, and it is, but the fish, the fish, the shellfish is just phenomenal. And everywhere you go, the regional differences are really great and, and fabulous. What, what would you say uh, with that much fish consumption? Um, would you say uh, uh, red wine gets drank with fish pretty much everywhere, or is it... Yeah, they definitely drink uh, red wine fish, but there's a lot of Spanish whites that get consumed. We don't see a lot of them on the shelf here in the U.S. People don't know a lot about them, and they're frankly, they're difficult sells because people don't think of Spain as a white wine country, but there's so many wonderful white wines in Spain and, and many indigenous grapes, including Palomino, which is the basis for uh, sherry, sherry, of course, mm-hmm. uh, Godeo, which is a gorgeous uh, white wine grape, one of my favorites, in fact. And uh, Albarino, of course, which, you know, is now becoming a little bit more mainstream. Um, And these are all just phenomenal white wine grapes. Also, Verdejo, too, is a a great uh, white wine. Uh, And you see that consumed day in and day out in Spain. Those are sort of workhorse white wines, and all of them pair well with seafood. What would you say is your go-to pairing for, I guess, the grape we have the most of 
today in the bag is Tempranillo. Tempranillo. What, what would be your go-to something that that you would prepare with it at the house? Wow, I love Tempranillo with just about everything, and I know that's kind of it's not kind of a non-answer, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's you know, it's a, it goes well with it goes great with duck, goes with well with any kind of game. Phenomenal with beef, uh, lamb and Tempranillo are things that that are traditional in Spain. Uh -huh. uh, goat and Tempranillo or roasted goat roasted, are very okay. traditional in Spain. Um, so it really just sort of runs the gamut. You know, well, pork too, actually, just come to some extent. But uh, it's, I just think it's such a versatile grape that it, that's why I like it. It's, not, you know, it's something that's going to pair well with just about anything. If I was planning a trip to Spain, what is the one city that I can't miss? Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, I should I should have vetted you for these questions. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I, I you ha well, you have to go to Madrid just because it's the heart and soul of Spain. It may not be the most uh, pretty city. Well, it is pretty in its own way, but it, it it's just it really is the the, the beating heart of Spain. And 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 uh, so that's something you certainly couldn't miss. Okay. Well, I definitely won't then. Um, Richard, thanks so much for being with us, uh, guys at home. Uh, El, Pro El Proto, I'm saying it like it's Italian. Protos was fantastic. Anciano has quite a few different tiers. It's fantastic. The lawn wines have been great. Poquito Moscato. Um, so there's a lot of amazing stuff we've been trying today. So try it at home. Check it out. And uh, Richard, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I, I loved it here in Colombia. And thanks for having me. I hope I get to come back soon. Yes, sir. Me too. If you weren't already dying to visit Spain, I'm sure you are now. And next up, a quick phone call with John McDaniel, founder and CEO of Second City Soil, in my favorite segment called Tick Five. 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 Tick Hello. Morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Very well. Very well. Thanks for the call this morning. No, absolutely. Thanks for taking a couple minutes out. I'm excited to have you. Uh, I think uh, maybe not first, but you might be the the second uh, person I've had on my podcast who I've never actually spoken to before. So I'm very excited for that as well. Uh, it, it, it'll be great and new for most of us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have you? I, I feel like you've probably been on podcasts before. Is that accurate? Yeah, I've been on a few, and I was, uh, actually um, one of them sent me this really fancy microphone that uh, if I would have thought about it a little bit more this morning, I would have uh, busted that out, but uh, I'll be, be okay. Oh, I can hear you fine. Uh, my podcast isn't fancy at all. It's all done off of a phone and sitting in a car, so... Um, so the way that this segment works is um, it's called Take 5, and I just get a cool guy like you on the phone and ask you just five questions. So, sound good? Let's do it. Awesome. All right. Well, let's start with question number one. Uh, let me preface with, um, in addition to all the various accolades that I've read about you, um, you were 2018 Psalm of the Year for Food and Wine Magazine, correct? Yeah. One okay. of uh, five or six, something like that, but it's uh, certainly a special honor. Yeah. yeah well, that's, I think it's amazing. So, so my question is, um, and I know this might be oversimplifying, but but what makes a good psalm, in your opinion? 
know, I think it's it's someone that realizes first and foremost that their job is to a consumer at some point. Uh, I think that the the name sommelier, the name song, um, has a lot of connotations for a consumer, some of which are very positive, and that can be a resource for wine education and, and really helping consumers weave through the kind of crazy, uh, very detailed, very overwhelming world of wine information. There's also a potential negative connotation of being a know-it-all or being contentious or being condescending. And so uh, I think a sommelier, first and foremost, you know, their job is to help the consumer, whether that be in a retail setting or a restaurant setting or, you know, out on a Friday night as a consumer themselves and just share information uh, to people that want to know more. Uh, so, so quick follow up to that last part. First of all, it's an amazing answer. I love that. Um, the the um, negative connotation sommelier that you just spoke of. Um, you know a lot more psalms than I do. Do you feel like uh, m- more than not that's the norm or that's the exception? The the know it all, I guess. You know, I, I think it's both. Uh, I think that it really depends on why you became a sommelier in the first place. You became a sommelier to be in a position of authority and a position of knowledge. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot of positives of, you know, the court and WSET and these different organizations that are certification organizations. You know, the public perception of those organizations through documentaries like SOM, you know, show a very specific, detailed, part of the sommelier world that is not really relevant to most sommeliers. And so the public perception of those is that, you know, every sommelier and that I wake up every day and I am also Ian Cobble or I am Dustin Wilson and my life has absolutely nothing to do uh, with what they are doing and what they inspired with that amazing accomplishment of becoming a master sommelier. So I think having that mindset always is that the consumer's perception of the sommelier from publications of what's the hardest exam ever created and these four guys sit in a room and they talk about, you know, garden hoses and all these very detailed apps and all that. Uh-huh. Yes, that is a very important aspect of our business and, you know, the reaching Mount Everest in what we do. But, you know, I think that, you know, I have told maybe three consumers in my entire professional career what my quote-unquote sommelier status is because it's not relevant to them, it's not relevant to me. It was, you know, a, a time in my educational you know, life that uh, was very important. And I have found that it has nothing to do, the certification status in the aspect of it uh-huh. has nothing to do with what I do on a daily basis. And, you know, my, my joke that and I get in trouble sometimes is that when people ask me where my pin is, I say it's balancing my coffee table. Because it's just not it's uh-huh. not part of what I do on a daily basis, and I Well, well, that's a that's those interactions to be swayed visually. Well, well, I think that's a great answer, and I think it it flows very well to my second question, which is more about what you actually do. And can you explain to me, as the owner of Second City Soil, what exactly that is, and and what you're doing? Yeah. So the the best way I can describe what I do is I do everything but hold inventory, uh, which is if you're in the trade, you kind of understand how, how beneficial that can be. But 
Uh-huh. So I started Second City Soil while still being an on-the-floor sommelier a couple years ago, uh, you know, after I received a couple accolades, and I realized that here in Chicago, we have a lot of amazing sommeliers, we have a lot of amazing personalities that are great in theory, and they're great on the floor, but they don't necessarily know how to, you know, promote themselves, and so I wanted to create kind of a, a vehicle to be able to promote sommeliers. Uh, when I decided uh, about a year and a half ago to leave the floor uh, and just, you know, kind of create something, I, I knew that I had the, the bones there to do something more uh, in the wine world. Uh, you know, Second City Soil was already there as the base of what I wanted to do and the strategy of Chicago is a very interesting place when it comes to wine that we have an amazing world-class restaurant city that is recognized all over, but our wine it's really on par with that from a critical or public perception how I can help move that along, how it can help, you know, different wineries that have opportunities here in the city that maybe they're not taking advantage of. Different, you know, international organizations like Wines of Alsace or mm-hmm. the Lambert Valley or these different regions that they now have a lot of funding to do different educational or marketing programs, but they don't know how to best a city like Chicago and so that's really kind of my focus is really helping everyone whether that be from the sommelier side or the winery side or the different trade organization side of just how to be more successful here in Chicago because most of those people you know from the outside looking in have no idea how to tackle it. Well that is that is a very interesting yeah I've read about it I didn't quite get it but that's a very cool thing that you're doing I love that trying to anyway and that, uh, that definitely has uh, expanded a lot to um, you know I have uh, a couple of different clients that I represent as a you know almost a sommelier ambassador uh-huh. uh, across the country because I they participate in Pebble Beach and Aspen wine and I I'm in Chicago about 70% of the time and travel about 30% of the time so when I'm out there in the world um, you know it's representing Chicago it's a great wine city but it's also representing uh, you know whether it be wineries or different regions and, and different entities on really how to uh, be more successful in, in what they do if they get in front of the right people. Huh. Well, that's extremely cool. Um, wow. Okay, so uh, so for question number three, I'm going to kick you back to um, uh, when you were a floor som, I guess. Um, just in your opinion, I, th- I feel like there's so many different specific questions I could ask to a SOM who's running a program. Um, but I think the one that I want to ask is about the by the glass list. How, how do you, how do you approach that? Cause there's a lot more constraints there obviously and, and things that you're thinking about than you are in a bottle list. What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, the, the programs that I have always run are programs that a sommelier is an addition, not a necessity. So if you look at programs that I've run that, you know, most guests, don't necessarily want a sommelier to come to the table. So I look at the wine list as a whole as the sommelier itself. So any wine list that I do and I still consult on some different restaurant lists, I want there to be some sort of descriptions for the wine so that the guests can read those descriptions and that they can have a little bit of context to that. And so when I train my service staff, my service staff, you know, obviously should know the bottle list and should know how to kind of guide to get through that but they are experts in the by the glass list because the restaurants that I've always run, 
have been 70%, 80% by the glass and 20 to 80% by the bottle. So by the glass, hugely important. And you want to give variety, but you don't want to give too many options because really the, the wine is supposed to be an ingredient to the larger experience and not the star of the show. So a by the glass wine, you know, needs to be well priced. It needs to be something that is going to pair with the concept and with the food. And then it's basically my goal as a sommelier in those concepts with the by the glass list is just not screw up what the chef has done. Uh, and so, you know, things that are overly obscure or overly that, you know, there's a possibility that the guest is going to go, whoa, 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 this is terrible. That's not really what the by the right. glass list is supposed to do. It's supposed to be about comfort. It's supposed to be about approachability that someone can go through that no matter what their level of wine experience or comfort is, and they can go through there and they can point to something and say, oh, yes, I know this. So in my mindset with my concept of I know walking in that someone is going to ask whether they look at the list or not for a glass of quote-unquote California Chardonnay, Cabernet, off-dry-ish Riesling, Mm -hmm. Grigio, and New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Those are the things that it doesn't matter what the concept is. Those are things that people just call for. Right. So I either have to have that specific thing. So, all right, they're looking for a semi-oaky, semi-buttery kind of Chardonnay. They're looking for a Napa-ish Cabernet. They're looking for a reason with just a little bit of residual sugar to it. And they're looking for a New Zealand style of Sauvignon Blanc. If I'm running an all Italian by the glass list, which I have uh, with my restaurant Acanto that I ran in downtown Chicago, I get asked 10 times a week for a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc by the glass. And if I choose to say, well, I don't do New Zealand by the glass, I only do Italian, my Sauvignon Blanc by the glass better taste pretty damn close to what right. New Zealand would mm-hmm. for the general consumer. And I also had to eventually put a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc by the bottle on the very last page, and it was hidden, and I would sell a case a week. <laughs> there you go. So you just have to you have to understand you know, the buy the glass list. If you are in the again, this depends on your concept and your level of sophistication, uh, you know, in your dining room. It has to be something that you should never have to have a sommelier come over and explain your buy the glass program. It should be clear by what your offerings are what exactly your concept is, what exactly you believe in as a sommelier and as a wine director and as a restaurant. And if you have to have a sommelier come over and explain one of the by-the-glass wines, in my opinion, you just didn't do a very good job in, in the selection process for those glass wars. That is an amazing answer to that question. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, all right, uh, question number four. I don't know if you have an opinion on this. It's something I found out about recently maybe with the last month, and I, I have my head under the rock, so it could have been happening for a while. But um, social media influencers, mostly through Instagram, um, I have recently seen a string of posts where, um, from what I understand, it's uh, a model maybe or somebody who isn't actually intimately acquainted with a particular wine or a winery, um, but they just take pictures out in the vineyards and they promote it and I think they get paid for it. What do you, do you have a, a strong feeling one way or the other about that? It, um, I, yes, uh, certainly. Uh, no, it, it's interesting being, um, I never really thought of myself as being, you know, someone that was very good at social media, very good at any of those things. Uh, but somehow I have between my, you know, 
my personal and my professional account have almost 30,000 followers. Uh-huh. I don't understand at all what people are doing. <laughs> that in itself, is those, those kind of numbers, you know, get different entities very interested in who my followers are. And so, you know, whether I like it or not, I am quote-unquote classified as an influencer when it comes to wine and beverage. And so I look at, you know, these different posts that are out there, and I think that it, the social media influencer in the, the landscape of, you know, the, the model and the vineyard and those kind of things, of that is the wine as art. If someone is buying that wine just because of that image, you know, then they're going to basically be influenced by anything in any different category. So I don't think that those necessarily hurt. I think it, you know, is, is creating an image. And I think that those work for, obviously, the growth of the rosé uh, category. Is, Very much. You know, by, by in part, you know, uh, influenced a lot by social media. And it's the, you know, if people are taken in with rosé and they're drinking wine, as opposed to, you know, the, you know, the cosmopolitan uh, social media influencer or the Jameson social media influencer, if they are taken in by wine and start to ask questions about what the right rosé for them is based off of that one bottle, you know, drinking rosé in a vineyard or by the pool and life is grand. Uh-huh. You no, know, I'm, I'm, I'm going yeah. to be okay with that, yeah. Um, you know, some of them are silly and stupid and, you know, overtly, uh, you know, basically just kind of taking advantage of, uh, you know, our natural inclination to like things that are beautiful and sexy and all those things. But, you know, it's, it's wine, I think, hat is in constant competition with the growth of the craft beer and spirit movement and anything that we can do as a wine world to stay relevant uh, with the millennials and, and all of that, I mean, you, you got to take your shot. So, uh, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, pretty stupid, but, you know, if you get someone to drink a glass of rosé, uh, you know, all, all the better. Because, uh, you know, I found, so I, I represent uh, and uh, am an ambassador for a really great chateau in Provence, Chateau de Bern, and, you know. Oh, that's so great, rosé. Yeah, it's an authentic product and it's amazing. But at the same time, to get to the 24-year-old, you know, girl in Miami, like you got to figure out a social media campaign. You have to figure out something that is going to compete with, you know, Whispering Angel, which is basically kind of, you know, they buy juice on the market and then they, you know, mix it up in a lab and do whatever. So um, you have to stay competitive uh, always, no matter what uh, your product is. Hmm. Great, that's a refreshing takeaway. Thank you. Um, and Chateau de Bern is fantastic. You know, you know the first time, uh, you know, I, I've I've drank Chateau de Bern before, but you know, the last time that I was in France, it was so interesting to me that not only is that wine everywhere, but you know, every restaurant that has uh, their their leftover recycled bottles that they fill with water for their carafes whenever they're giving you cold water on the table. Every single one was in the trademark Chateau Burn, and you see the burn at the bottom of it embossed, and that was funny. It just shows how much the French actually like that brand. Um. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's amazing of that in itself. Of you know, when you look at the marketing of wine, you know, an authentic product still has to be. You know, the bottle itself is very much part of the package. It's very Absolutely. Much part of the identity of the brand. That yes, that would be. You know, I would love to walk into a restaurant in the U.S. 
the you know Jack of the Burn water bottle. Right. Such, <laughs> such a unique package. That would be great. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That could be part. part Tell of them to start that here. <laughs> Um, all right. So my last and final question is always, I would call it the stumper. So here's your stumper question. As somebody who just admitted they spend 70% of their time in Chicago, I want to ask you in the 1980 classic um, Blues Brothers, which was filmed and took place in Chicago. All I want to know is what was the name of the two Blues Brothers, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi? What were their characters' names? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we have, okay, Jake and Elwood. There it is, Jake and Elwood Blues. Beautiful. You, you had me worried for a second right. there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, I'm not a native Chicagoan. I've, I've been here about seven years, but the, I found that this is the first city I've ever lived in that I actually have chosen to live here. Uh, every everywhere I've been has been basically moved for a job, but uh, you know Chicago is uh, an amazing city. And uh, the first place that I said, "Hey, you know what? I really like this place. I want to figure out how to stay." And so, uh, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't be very good uh, moving to you know Orlando and having a company called Second City Soil there. So, well, well, I love that. And now I feel like I've never been to Chicago. I feel like I need to make an asserted effort to visit. You got you got to come. Uh, you have a window of about three weeks, and then uh, I wouldn't recommend the next three months. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing city. Well, awesome. Well, well, John, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Um, and yeah, um, thanks so much. I hope you have a great one. All right. Very good. Take care. Hey, thanks. Bye. Well, that wraps it up. Hope you had a great time. Thanks for Richard Riddle of Well Oiled Wine Company and John McDaniel of Second City Soil for their time with me today. Thanks to Robert Gardner for lending me his sweet, sweet jazz and for everyone else who makes this podcast work. And thanks to you for listening. Share, subscribe, like, tell a friend. And finally, join me next Wednesday for episode 25, Going Live. Until then, chin chin. <laughs>